Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Being famous, knowing someone famous, getting a laugh after telling a joke, getting a good grade, getting likes on a social media post, winning a video game, cooking a tasty meal, being good looking, having inside knowledge, sharing a good recommendation. Now, we often think of status exclusively in terms of wealth, but it's actually at play everywhere. In every situation where we get the feeling of being of value, where we feel ever so slightly elevated in our relative social position. The universal desire for status greatly influences our culture as well as our own behavior and the ups and downs of our mood. We would all do well then to understand status better. And my guest today can help you do just that. His name is Will Storr, and he's the author of The Status Game on social position and how we use it. Today on the show, Will walks us through why status and its infinite forms is so important to people, the ways it can be gained through dominance, virtue, and success, and how status games take place both within groups and between them. We talk about the good of status, how it can give us a psychological high and motivate the pursuit of skill, competence, and achievement, as well as its dark sides, including the way that a loss in status and the resulting feeling of humiliation leads to depression and sometimes violence. Will explains how status can be gained by enforcing the rules of a group and punishing those who seem to be lowering the overall status of the tribe and how this punitive dynamic plays out online. We also discuss how when you try to eliminate certain status games by making things equal, people just find other status games to play, and that when one hierarchy is destroyed, another simply rises to take its place. We end our conversation with what we can do if status games are inescapable, play it in a healthy way. After the show's over, check out our show notes at awm.is status. Will Storr, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So you got a new book out called The Status Game on social position and how we use it. And in this book, you take this very broad, also a deep dive into the anthropology, the history, the psychology, the sociology, the philosophy of social status. And I'm curious, what led you to take such a deep dive into social status? Something that we don't like to talk about particularly. Yeah. So so for the last few books, I've been really writing books around the idea that the brain is this storyteller and that the conscious experience of our life is that we're this hero in this in the, in the un, kind of unfolding plot of our lives. And, you know, and, and the books that I've been writing have sort of been sort of focused around, around that idea. But then I started to think, okay, so if, if the conscious experience of life is this heroic story and, and that heroic story is kind of delusional and, and kind of leads us into all these traps, what's going on in the subconscious? Because the subconscious is unimaginably more powerful than the conscious. So, so what's the, what's, what's actually going on down there? And so the status game is my, yes, my attempt at answering that question. Okay. So let's start with definitions. How do you define status, social status? It's simply the feeling of being of value. And to understand that, you've got to understand, you know, kind of where it comes from for humans. Most living things compete for status. um, And the more status they get, the better their lives get, the the longer they survive, the more and more safely they can reproduce. So so it's a really important, critical goal that, that lots and lots of living things have. But humans, with this kind of tribal ape, and so tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years ago, when we were 
when our brains were evolving and becoming the, the recognizably human brains that we have today. We were living in these hunter-gatherer groups and we started competing for status with prestige. And the way that we gained that kind of these prestigious forms of status were by being valuable to our group. And so, and there are two ways of being valuable to your group. You can be virtuous. So you could be like generous and courageous and good follower of rules, or you can be successful. You can be valuable being useful or being a great honey finder or a great storyteller or a great hunter. So that, so that's kind of the root of a lot of, of human status driving. It's that feeling of being a value. And when we feel that we're valued to other people, that's when we get that great status bump. And I think an important point to make is status isn't just about being rich. I think a lot of times when we think about status, we think of class, right? Who has yeah. you know, lower class, middle class, upper class. But status is everywhere. It's You get status for being young. You might get status for being attractive. You get status when you know someone compliments you on something you did. So like on your clothes, your, you know, if you had a good thought, if your kids are well-behaved. You get status for winning like a, a board game or a, a pickup game of basketball or you're getting likes on. It's, it's not just about money. It is just about your relative social position with other people in your group. Yeah, absolutely. So the brain has this thing that scientists call the status detection system. And it's unbelievably sensitive. It's constantly monitoring evidence for our relative status versus other people and for other, and you know, monitoring other people's status as well. And in the book, you know, write about some of these crazy things they found, the relative amount of orange juice you get poured in your glass versus somebody else. If you get more of that, you know, the brain reads that as good. And if you get less, you get offended. Oh, that's, I've been treated as if I'm lower status. So we're unbelievably obsessed with status. I mean, we're constantly measuring it, mostly subconsciously. It's all about symbol. Those measures of orange juice in the glass, that's the symbolic status kind of ranking. But so is money. And so is as you say, you know, kids' soccer games and the soccer games that we play. And, and so we, we're constantly measuring our status in this kind of wild variety of ways. And there's a lot of things going on when we experience status, like physiologically, like there's hormones that boost stuff from, you know, testosterone increases, I think both in men and women, but more in men, you feel this a surge of testosterone. Like even if you're watching like your favorite football team or soccer team play and they win, the people watching on TV, the men watching on TV will have this surge in testosterone. So there's a lot of, and there's like neurochemicals that go on. And then when the same thing, when you have like a status defeat, when your team loses, or if you experience some sort of slight, you know, testosterone levels go down, you don't get the dopamine or the serotonin. So we, we are definitely wired for this. And we've been wired for it since before we were human. You know, before we were human, it was mostly dominance battles. So, you know, with physical fighting, um, you know, lots of animals still use dominance. Most animals use dominance as their primary way of competing for status. So, yeah, you can't, you can't get rid of it. it. It's in the brain. It's been in the brain for millions of years and we all do it. And then, but there's people out there that say, well, I just, I don't care about status. That's, I'm above that. Um, <laughs> is it really possible not to care about status? It's completely impossible. Yeah, it's completely, it, it, and that always makes me laugh because because you say, you know, so why are you telling me that? You, usually when, when, when people tell you, oh, I don't care what other people think of me, they're kind of showing off. They're kind of saying, I'm better than you because I don't care what other people think of me. And it's like, well, it's just completely self-defeating argument. It always makes me chuckle because because you can just tell by the tone of voice, people are kind of, they're, they're using that as a claim to, to status. Uh, and so, so no, you know, you can't, I mean, you know, I, I, I've got, you know, I know, know people who are sort of big into their kind of mindfulness and wellness. And they're kind of anti-materialistic. Maybe they're driving a beaten up car and they, they're kind of thinking that that means they're kind of immune to being interested in the status. But the way they're dressing and eating and living their life are, are just ways that they're 
enabling themselves to look down their nose at other people who aren't sort of behaving as they are. Uh, one of the studies that I write about in the book, some academics in, in the University of Amsterdam, um, they did a survey of 3,700 people who were into mindfulness meditation. And they were specifically looking at people who were doing meditation to get rid of their kind of ego needs and their need for success in their lives. And they found that these people scored very high in measures of what they called spiritual superiority. So, you know, they were saying things like, if you know, if other people had the amazing insights that I have, the world would be a much better place and all this stuff. I'm sure it's possible to reduce, you know, with lots of meditation to reduce your need for status, but you cannot get rid of it. And, and I mean, the only people that really try and get rid of it that I'm aware of in, in, in the modern age completely are the hikikomori in Japan, who who essentially shut themselves away. And you have to do that because you can't have a social encounter without playing the status game. You, you know, in, in all this, in, in tone of voice, in body language, um, you know, we're always getting information about what other people think of us. Do they think we're a good person or a bad person, uh, you know, a handsome person or an ugly person or a polite person or a rude person, you know, it just, it's endless. So the only way you can really do it is to shut yourself away like the Hikikomori do. But even then, most of them are playing computer games and that's a status game. So Right, there's, there's status going on there. So yeah, even when people say like, I don't care about status, you you might not care about the status game that the wider culture is playing. You're going to play a different status game yeah so, so so the way to understand it is i mean that's how i talk about games is that there's not one game for status that everyone's playing with each other there are infinite games and that's because we're tribal we're a groupish species so we have these very powerful subconscious urges to do two things and one is to connect with other people to connect into coalitions of like-minded people and then once we're in those coalitions we you know we compete for status within those groups so you know we, we want to raise in status and be, be thought of as a kind of above average member of that group but then also those groups compete with other groups for status so if, if we're playing in a soccer match for example we want to get a reputation as one of the better players on the on the pitch amongst our team players but we also try to beat the other team you know, so, so, so we're connecting into games and then competing for status within them and with other kind of games. You know, if you think about that, that's, that's sports, that's politics, that's religion, that, that's hobby groups, that's groups on social media. So, so, so they're kind of infinite games that we play. And, and as I said before, we can use anything to symbolize status. And as you say, lots of people just assume you mean money, but money is only one way that we play the status game. There are lots of other ways that we can, you know, play the game. It's just about, you know, anything that makes us, feel that we are kind of of value in the eyes of other people. All right. So just to be, we're hardwired for status. The reason is because it serves a benefit to us. If you, the higher status you get, the more access to resources, uh, reproduction, you get to mate. And then even as a group, group status, like that also, the whole group gets those benefits as well, right? But let's talk about these, digging deep into how we can gain status. And you mentioned some of them earlier on, sort of the primal way of well there's a couple of ways there's one type of status called embodied status where it's just basically you gain status because of some feature you have physically so whether you're young or old young people typically get more status in our culture these days if you're attractive you have more status and things like that but then there's there's things that people can do to gain status and like the most primal way to gain status is dominance let's talk about dominant status what does that look like is it just a matter of beating people up physically, or are there other ways to display dominance without physical altercation? So dominance isn't just about violence and the threat of violence. It's also it's, it's any kind of threat. So, so anytime when someone's kind of forcing or coercing you to kind of attend to them in status and sort of give them 
kind of respect that you don't really want to give them. That that's dominance. You know, obviously, when you think of dominance, you you think of the more masculine qualities, which is you know it tends to be one on one, face to face, and physical aggression. Again, we've been doing that for millions of years before we were recognisably human. We, we were much bigger, had had much heavier skeletons, we were much more physically powerful. We we're basically built for dominance disputes. Even today, millions of years later, men still are bigger, and still you know you, you can still see the traces of that kind of extremely violent life that we used to live millions of years ago in, in, the, in the human skeleton and in human psychology and male psychology. But that isn't the only way to, to use the sort of dominance to compete for status. Things like ostracization, bullying, reputation destruction, they're also forms of dominance. And what you tend to find is, uh, especially in children and in young adults, that plays out quite clearly in, in that young males are much more likely to use physical aggression one-on-one to um, sort of compete in dominance disputes. And young females are more likely to use that kind of bullying, the, you know, the group ganging up on somebody else, the gossiping, the reputation destruction. So that's more kind of female typical. But then when the men grow up, because, you know, usually when men get beyond, I don't know, mid-20s, late-20s, they're much less likely to use violence or the threat of it. And that, that kind of levels out and everybody just starts using these kind of more reputation-based forms of dominance. Okay. So men are more prone to use physical violence, threats of intimidation. Yeah. Young women, sort of that reputational stuff, like that mean girl stuff that, you know, the mean girl. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. When are we more likely to use dominance? Because we all use this at some point, like as a parent, you might be like, well, you're going to get your iPad taken away from, (laughs) but like on a, when do like adults use that with each other? When do they use that strategy for status? There are lots of ways that we, that we kind of have to use dominance. You know, in, in, in moments of in war, we use dominance. When Apple computer sues a rival for patent infringement, that's a dominance thing. That's a kind of force thing. But, we, but we're, more, we're most likely to kind of tip into those kind of modes of behavior. And you're right, you know, we, we all do it every day, even, you know, when we're kind of growling at somebody in the supermarket checkout queue who's, you know, who's upset us. We're using, that's a kind of form of dominance. It's most likely to happen when the, the kind of relative status of the people in the, in the dispute are unclear. So in the book, I talk about this woman who had an encounter with two police officers and the police officers have pulled her kid over. And I think it was the car wasn't insured or something like this, but she kind of marched up to them and started berating them and insulting them. And it turns out that she was sort of high up in the police hierarchy. And she, of course, thought this made her the kind of senior ranking person in the dispute and, and that they should defer to her. But as far as they were concerned, she was just there to pick up the kids and it was irrelevant what her job was. And, and so, so there was this dispute about who had, who actually had the right to behave as if they were higher status. The, the dispute ended up badly for the woman. She ended up having to, I think she, she ended up having to resign her job because they filmed the dispute and it, and it ended up on the internet and she didn't look, it, did, it didn't reflect very well on her. But, but yes, yeah, so, so it's in disputes where the kind of relative kind of ranking of the people involved are, are kind of a bit murky, a bit ambiguous. Like, like the most obvious example is if you can imagine going into a new company as the boss, but you're, you know, you're 29 and, and you're going in to manage people who have been there for years and they're in their 40s and 50s. It's ambiguous there because they're going to look at you as this, as this kid. Who are you to boss me around? But the kid is the boss. So the kid is there to boss them around. So it's that situation that really is kind of very dangerous in human relations. Well, that happens in animals too, with wolves. Like for a long time, we thought that the alpha wolf was the wolf that just beats up on the other wolves. But that observation was made by looking at wolves in captivity. So they would just, what they did is they got a bunch of wolves, random wolves from not the same pack, 
put them in captivity and they saw, well, this wolf beat up all the other wolves. And so he's the alpha wolf. But then, so yeah, that's the, okay. So alpha wolf is the guy that beats up everybody. But then they actually started observing wolf packs in the wild. And what they found that doesn't happen. Like the alpha wolf and are just like the parent wolves and their, their cubs are their, in their pack. So in, in the natural setting, the status hierarchy is established, right? The parents are the top dogs. Mm-hmm. So, so the, in that sense, wolves don't rely on dominance. They just that's mom, you follow mom and dad, you do what they do. But in yeah. captivity, when you put wolves from different packs together, that's when all the, the fighting happens. Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah. Okay, so dominant status, that we, we go to that with threats whenever we're not sure about the status in a situation. You mentioned there's prestige status. And there's two ways you can get prestige status. There's virtue and success status. What does virtue status look like? Where this comes from is, is when we started to be these kind of weird apes who are highly, highly cooperative. And, you know, humans back then are like humans are today, really. You know, we can be really nice, but we can also be very selfish, self-interested, hypocritical, delusional about our kind of moral capacity. So how does evolution get these kind of slightly selfish, self-interested, delusional apes to work together and cooperate and be, and think about other people? So this is the way you have to sort of develop this reward system for rewarding tribal members for behavior that puts the interests of the tribe ahead of their own selfish interests. So, so, so that's why selfless behaviors are universally seem to be morally good behaviors and selfish behaviors are universally seen to be morally bad behaviors because it's all about, in, you know, incentivizing us to be good members of the tribe. So, so, so anything that, that is kind of pro-tribe, selfless is, is kind of virtuous. And so that can be, as I said, generosity, sharing your meat and resources, you being courageous in battle, but, but also things about conformity Conformity. So knowing the rules, following the rules, taking part in all the rituals and taking part in them really well, you know, that's going to gain you status in the tribe because that's that, you know, you're a virtuous, you know, tribe first minded person. You're not selfish or selfless. And also, you know, enforcing the rules. So somebody that enforces the rules and punishes rule breakers, that's also seen as a virtuous act. So that's when it gets into slight sort of, sort of, you know, dodgy territory. And the other one is competence is success. So, so you know, it's obvious other way of being useful to the tribe. So that's just by, by being just skilled, by, by being a great honey finder, a great storyteller, a great, a great hunter. And so that, those are the three essential ways in, in human social life that we can, that we earn status as dominance, but there's also virtue and success. Maybe we see the benefits, right? If we have the status drive, it compels us to be a good person. It, it compels us to, it can compel us to, you know, be competent and become skilled at something. But this can also take us down dark paths. And the first way this can happen is when someone feels humiliated. Mm. So what happens when, so the humiliation is the opposite of status. It's the complete opposite. Yeah, what happens, this was a, this yeah, was what happens really- to us? This was a really interesting thing when I was sort of trying to work out whether it was right, what I was reading about status, whether it is really important. And I kind of a test that I set myself was, okay, if you're going to argue that status is so important, it must be really bad when it's taken away from us. And so... I started looking into that and, and I came across all the research li- literature on humiliation and how they define humiliation is, is, is not just the removal of all your status from the group. It's also the removal of your kind of ability to claim status in the future. So you're so, you've fallen so far down the game that you're out. You're basically expelled. Nobody wants to have anything to do with you forever. So it's really bad. To be, I mean, and we all, again, it's a universal thing, uh, which also shows how important status is. Nobody wants to be humiliated. We all fear humiliation. Humiliation is 
the basis of the absolute worst of human behavior. You know, most obviously, um, human violence. There's a violence researcher that I quote in the book that said when he got into studying violence, he just assumed, like most people do, that the major causes of street crime are greed and need. People are starving or they're greedy and they rob people. But when he actually met these people and spoke to these people for years, the most common reason is status disputes. People feel disrespected. So they, they, they fight back with dominance and they, and they, and in doing so, it's humiliation flips into pride. So, you know, a, a real driver of the cycle of violence that you see on the streets because everybody's trying to flip that sense of humiliation into pride and it, and it goes on and on and on. But then when you look at the kind of wider story, humiliation is, is implicated in the absolute worst of the worst of the worst of human behavior. And in the book, I, I, I talk about, you know, sp- incel spree killers, terrorists, serial killers, spies, <laughs> honor killings, all of which often have, very often have a, have a series of components of humiliation that kind of motivates them. Yeah. You highlight Elliot Rogers, the, the kid who did the mass shooting and you, know, you did a deep dive into him, did these manifestos and it just sounds like the, he was just, he just felt humiliated. Well, first off, it sounds like he was, a, he probably had some sort of narcissistic personality disorder, which made him more mm. vulnerable to humiliation. But if you look through, like he, he just had all these grievances and that, that's why he felt justified in what he did. Yeah, he, he's a really fascinating case. And, and so, so I kind of build this argument in that chapter that it isn't just humiliation that makes people dangerous. Like the most dangerous people are A, male, for reasons we've already you know, discussed, because you know, men tend to be violent, B, humiliated, but C, also narcissistic. Because if you're kind of grandiose and narcissistic, you're kind of dysfunctional in your in the way that you imagine the status game. You feel that you you are just naturally and automatically deserving of lots of status. And this is not this is sort of disconnected from your behavior. It's not about earning it. You just earn it because you're amazing. And so it's a very unhealthy way of living your life. But, but and if you take a narcissist, especially and a ma- if you take a male narcissist and you humiliate them again and again and again and again, you're going to end up with a very probably with an extremely dangerous person. And Elliot Rogers is, is, was definitely one of these people. But what was interesting about Elliot was that he he left this 108,000 word, it's actually an autobiography, like a, this very detailed memoir. He's full of you know moments of, of, of sort of extreme narcissism. You know, descriptions of himself as a gorgeous, fabulous gentleman, things like this. Um, but, but he's also brutally honest about his failures and brutally honest about his sense of humiliation, the hands of his peers, uh, the bullying he encountered. And the only way that he, the only kind of, his only kind of source of status in his life was World of Warcraft. And such was his need for status that he became obsessed with World of Warcraft and, and ended up sort of reaching its kind of top level. He became a really skilled player. And, you know, he says in the memoir that it was only when he was playing World of Warcraft that all his troubles with his social troubles receded and he forgot all about that and he was happy. And then one day he had this kind of small circle of friends that he would play World of Warcraft with at this internet cafe. And one day he decided, he discovered somehow they were all meeting up in secret behind his back because they didn't want to, didn't really want to play with him. And of course, this was devastating to him. And, and he, he talks about, he talks about playing with tears running down his face. And, and that was the last day he played seriously in his, in his memoir. That's the day where he just. He just, he just has his, these thoughts become just extraordinarily disordered. And, and, he, and he starts sort of imagining this kind of dark future world in which sex is abolished and women are, all the women are wiped out and, and, and so on. You know, in the book, I argue that, you know, after his spree killing, lots of commentators on the left and the right blamed World of Warcraft and said, well, it must be World of Warcraft that made him violent. But I actually think that World of Warcraft was the last thing keeping him sane because it was his last source of status that he had and it was taken from him and that's when he really cracked up 
All right, so humiliation is the most extreme form of status defeat, and it can, yeah. in certain situations, it can lead people to do terrible things. But we all experience, maybe not humiliation, but just status defeat on a daily basis. And I, I imagine if you look back on your behavior, like when you, you felt you weren't proud of the way you behaved, it was probably because it was a reaction to a status defeat of some sort, whether you got snippy with somebody or you, you lashed out online at somebody there might've been, you might've just been having a bad day because, you know, the boss yelled at you or something like that. Yeah, I think that's right. We respond in dominance all the time when, when things like that happen, it, you know, it affects our mental health too. I mean, yeah, lots and lots of cases of depression and, and, and even suicide are, are implicated in, in the sense that you are, you, you've either declined in status or the people around you have accelerated in status and you've stayed behind. And, you know, in suicidality is particularly, we become particularly vulnerable to that kind of suicidal thoughts when um, we have a very sudden drop in status. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. It used to be hard to find the exact auto part you needed, and that meant spending a lot of time at swap meets. It's a different game now where you can order exactly what you need from eBay Motors. They have 122 million parts, so you can always find the right fitment. Spend less time searching and more time building with eBay Motors app or visit ebaymotors.com. Let's ride. Whether it's stress, a demanding morning schedule, or trouble sleeping, we all know that sometimes life keeps you up. And trying to conquer the day after a night of tossing and turning is not so easy. Now you can get the sleep you deserve with ZQuil Pure Z's Melatonin Gummies. ZQuil Pure Z's Melatonin Gummies are designed to help you fall asleep naturally with no next day grogginess. Made at an optimal level of melatonin combined with a proprietary blend of other botanicals like chamomile and lavender, ZQuil Pure Z's Melatonin Gummies help to regulate your sleep cycle instead of just knocking you out. They're non-habit forming and work with your body to help you get the sleep you need. And to top it off, they come in a great tasting wild berry vanilla flavor. So I've been using ZQuil Pure Z's Melatonin Gummies for the past month now. Really have enjoyed it. I've used melatonin in the past to help me fall asleep when I've had trouble falling asleep. I like the Pure Z's Melatonin Gummies because, well, it comes in a gummy format. Who does not like gummies? The botanical blend helps you feel nice and relaxed, drift off to sleep. And the next day, don't feel groggy. Check out ZQuil Pure Z's Melatonin Gummies and the full line of Pure Z's Sleep Aids to start sleeping soundly today. And now back to the show. All right. So throughout the conversation so far, we have mentioned social media in passing and its role that it plays in status games. But I want to dig deeper into it because I think anyone who has a social media account has experienced firsthand how social media can ratchet up status anxiety. I mean, like you, you post a picture on Instagram and then you're just, the rest of the day you're checking, like how many likes did it get? What are people saying? Or you tweet something and then you're checking how many retweets did it get? So walk us through that. How does... How does social media intensify the status games that we play? Yeah, totally. I mean, I mean, all, all of social media is it's it's a status game, and, and I think what's happened to the social media giants and, and designers of have by kind of instinct and trial and error formed their platforms around our, our need for status. If you think about those three games that we played, dominance, virtue, and success, that is social media. You know, dominance with the kind of cancel culture you know, the, and the mobby kind of behavior, success, all the pictures of the lovely holidays and the, oh, I've won this award and I've got this new job. Um, and virtue, of course, I've done this amazing thing, you know, enforcing the rules, showing off about the marathon you've just run for, you know, breast cancer. And the interesting thing about it is, that, I, you know, lots of people kind of are, are aware of, of some of the kind of sort of 
dark technology that runs social media and this idea that it's it's a bit like a slot machine because the rewards are unpredictable so, so so if you make a contribution to social media you don't know how it's going you don't know how it's going to go down sometimes you're going it's going to you know you're going to get lots of likes sometimes you're going to get none or you might even get attacked um so the rewards are inconsistent which and that's what just like a fruit machine it keeps you coming back it gives this kind of addictive quality but as, as i say in the book you know I, I think that's quite well known amongst technologists that that, that kind of slot machine effect but what they don't really talk about is what you're actually gambling with and it, and it seems clear to me that you're, you're gambling with status that's what you're doing when you make when you make any contribution to social media whether it's a picture of your holiday or it's a kind of witty comment or it's an attack on a political opponent you're gambling with your status and sometimes you get loads of status sometimes you get retweets and people love it and you go yeah that's brilliant you're amazing and sometimes it's a disaster you either get ignored which is depressing or you get attacked and you, and you feel humiliated one of the sort of really interesting things about seeing it as a is this kind of huge global status game that we can play is that you know m- most people have just pretty ordinary lives and you know they're going to work every day and they're a teacher or whatever but but if they're very active on social media they might well find that they have more status packed into their you know phones that they're carrying around in their pocket than they do in their actual everyday lives so you know so so when they're in their everyday life they're, they're just they're a police officer or they're a, you know whatever but when they turn on their phone they're this you know amazing person with all these followers who love them because they're funny or they're brave or they're you know whatever and and, and so, so so i think that's why that's why social media can, be, can become such a powerful thing in people's lives because it becomes their kind of central nutrient for the mind status like just like the vit- vitamins are essential nutrients for the body and that can go down bad places because you know people feel terrible when they post something on social media and it doesn't do well or their follower count isn't going up and so to remedy that they start posting increasingly dumb or cringy things or they start saying inflammatory stuff that makes our our politics more polarized or they, they might start going after people because they need attention and they'll do anything to get another, another status boost related to the related to this idea at least to the piling on that you can see happen on social media sometimes. And this is something that happens offline too. It's the enforcement of the rules of the status games we play. And you say this can be explained by two archetypes of people who enforce these rules. You call them the cousins and the warriors. So who are these guys? Who are the cousins and warriors? Again, you know, to, to work out how this stuff works, you've got to go back and, and look at how life was in the tribes that we evolved in, because that's that's where our brains evolved and where these instincts and kind of patterns of behavior kind of first emerged. And one of the, one of the things I thought that it really surprised me when I, when you look at hunter gatherer life was that there, there wasn't some sort of big man figure in charge who was a big leader. It was generally much more collaborative that leadership in hunter gatherer tribes. And, and that's surprising because if you look at the world today, there are leaders everywhere. There are political leaders and, you know, they've got the cult of the CEO and the cult of the founder. We, we go to work and have bosses, you know, it, lead, you know, that one kind of leader feels like a natural natural and kind of universal facet of human life. But it wasn't like that back in the day. The status games that we played in those tribes were much, re- they were there, but they were much reduced. And what would happen is that they were, they were kind of a, like a small group of elders that researchers, they, they call them the cousins. And they're not literally cousins, but, they, but, they, but that's, just, that's what they call them. And, and there were these kind of elders. And, and so what would happen is if, if somebody, you know, dropped in status because they were behaving badly for, for whatever reason, the cousins would go, away and sort of discuss it and you know gossip would would kind of spread out amongst the tribe and the cousins would then kind of collaboratively kind of make this make a decision to to enforce 
the rules of the group. And so, you know, researchers talk about this idea that we weren't living under the tyranny of leaders. We were living under the tyranny of the cousins. It was a fearsome, fearsome, could often be a fearsome, fearsome environment to, to live in. You know, that, that one of the quotes from, from one of these researchers was that we lived in this, they called it a social cage of tradition where it, it is all about the rules. So execution, capital punishment was, is thought to have once been a human universal. So if, if you really transgress badly, you'd just be killed. And when you look at some of these groups, it isn't just, you can imagine, okay, somebody can be executed if by, for, you know, murdering, if they murder somebody else, or if they, you know, for some really egregious, uh, other really egregious, aggressive series of crimes. But you could be murdered for, for all kinds of reasons. You know, one of them was treading on the men's path. For a woman, you tread on the men's path, you could be executed. And in, in the book, I talk about this, that there's a story I, I got from the ethnographic literature from a group in Papua New Guinea. And what happened was somebody died of, of, of sickness in the, in the tribe, but the cousins decided that the person had died due to an act of sorcery. So that, so they did some sort of magic ritual with like smoking leaves to, to work out who, who the killer was. And, and they, they decided it was this one poor bloke who was accused and sort of panicked. The cousins began talking and gossiping and the gossip spreads throughout the tribe and everyone starts talking about all the bad things that this person did and why they're so awful. And, and, you know, the, the, a sense of moral outrage and disgust is kind of focused more and more on this individual. And eventually he's just killed and eaten. And that's what happened to him. I, in the book, as you'll know, I, I can, I compare that to the kinds of things that we see on social media. Of course, no one's being killed and eaten on social media, but, but it's the, but it's the same dynamics, you know, uh, and it's the same dynamics because we have these, we still have these tribal brains that the cousins are there on social media. And, and if they target somebody that they feel has transgressed the rules of their, their tribe, then the gossip starts, the gossip spreads down from, from their kind of lofty heights to all their followers. And it builds and it builds and it builds and it builds. And then, but the attack is, it's about that reputation destruction, that other form of dominance uh, we also use. And of course, that's sometimes we call that cancel culture, but, but it, but it's certainly, you know, we see that a lot on social media because it's, it's human behavior. Well, yeah, I think that's a, a good point you make throughout the book. I think about this idea of, of in small, groups or in tribes, I think there's this romantic idea that like, oh, they were egalitarian. We should be more like hunter-gatherer <laughs> tribes. And like, look, you know, the, the potlatch, right? Look at this this big man. He's giving yeah. away all of his stuff because he's so generous and noble. And But if you if you actually look at the ethnographic research, a lot of times the, the, the researchers find out, no, they were just giving away, not because they were like good, it's like they were afraid if they don't, that whole, the cousins would gang up on them and just yeah. kill them because there they could be no one higher in the in the group yeah that's right and also it's the do for status you know potlatches a lot of that was about status in, in, in the book i talk about you know a similar idea with with these big yams and whoever brought the biggest yam to the feast was declared number one and was you know rosing status so that's absolutely right and also this idea of you know the egalitarian tribe the first thing to say about that is that is that that's relatively speaking that they weren't actually egalitarian these tribes not everybody was equal. There were status hierarchies in there, but they're just much shallower than we see today. And the second thing, that sort, of, sort of just as importantly, is they're not egalitarian because they're all sort of communists and they're, they're all, they're, nobody wanted to you know, be the boss because they're all so humble and nice. They're egalitarian because they're all obsessed <laughs> with their own level of status. Right. And everyone is checking everyone else constantly to make sure that nobody claims too much. So when everybody's butting heads you know, socially constantly to make sure nobody rises too much, that, that, that's kind of what you end up with. If you live in an environment where you don't have property or in you know, a private property or in you know, a land ownership 
these kinds of things that can kind of become sources of status. So yeah, there is this myth that we lived in this proto-communist utopia back in the day, and it, it just isn't true. You, you mentioned, so there's the cousins, these kind of, they're in the group to sort of enforce the rules. What are the warriors? Yeah, I talk about the warriors because, I mean, again, you know, looking at looking at kind of social media, the cousins are the ones that I guess decide on on who gets punished. Um, the warriors, are, I talk about these people that sort of go out and attack other members of the tribe. And again, what we see in these the tribes in which we evolved. They, 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 were, they were pretty violent. I mean, the tribes that weren't particularly violent and the ones that are isolated are not near, not that near to other tribes. But it's, it's fairly common for, the, for those kind of hunter-gatherer tribes to be extremely territorial, extremely aggressive, and to launch raiding attacks on rival tribes and in, in turn to have to defend themselves from raiding attacks on, on their own tribes. And again, you see this in life today. You see it on social media again, these, these kind of warrior behavior, which is... Not not so much about enforcing the rules within the group, but going out and attacking members of other groups for perceived attacks on their kind of status. And I think to sort of explain, I need to sort of need to explain that um, you know one way that we measure status is with beliefs. So beliefs can be status symbols. So we we can believe a million things that have nothing to do with status, like the length of the Mississippi River and the boiling point of water. And nobody argues about this stuff because nobody's status is, is attached to it. But there's a small kind of set, subset of beliefs. That, that, that we attach our status to, that when somebody doesn't believe that thing, we look down our nose at them and then we look up at people and we admire people who do, who do believe those things. And, and of course, these are things like political beliefs, moral beliefs. And so every kind of status game has its, has its kind of sacred beliefs. And, and I think what you see in social media is, is warriors going out to attack people who they feel have insulted the sacred beliefs of their tribe. Throughout the book, you mentioned that status games, were, there's all different types of status games going on. There could be a status game within a tribe, within your family, at work, wherever, or on a societal level even. But you talk about that sometimes status games can start to become tight. And that's when they get more intense. Like, what do you, yeah. what, why does that happen? And what does a, a tight status game look like? So, so this is based on some really fascinating work, principally by a psychologist called Michelle um, Gelfand. So she, she studies the differences in cultures rather than groups. And what she finds, and, and psychologists who, who, who study the same thing, what they find is that there are different kinds of culture. Some cultures are tight, relatively tight, and some cultures are relatively loose. Tight cultures tend to be much more conformist, much more suspicious of outsiders, much more kind of religious, much more prone to kind of, you know, supernatural belief. They're kind of rule, rule makers, rule followers. So if you look at things like the time in, in, on clocks in public spaces, in tight cultures, much more like to be correct than in loose cultures. The trains run on time more in tight cultures than loose cultures. So Germany is a relatively tight culture. Um, the UK is relatively loose. And, and what makes them this way, Gelfund and others believe, is that is kind of a history of struggle, difficulty, whether it be climactic difficulty or plagues or wars. If, if that culture has a, has a, has a history of a very severe kind of shock and stress and pressure, that they tighten up and they kind of remain that way. And, and I just sort of, sort of ex- extended that idea to, to groups in general, because I think it works for groups in general. If you think about the, the group as the status game, what's the tightest status game you can possibly play but that's a cult what defines a cult is the cult of saying we are your only source of status that's it you are not allowed any other source of connection or status 
anywhere in your life. And that's why cults want you to cut off contact with your family and friends and, you know, even outside jobs. Um, sometimes you're not allowed to have if you're a member of a cult and, and they offer you a very, very specific set of rules by which to earn status. You must do this. You must do this. You must do this. And you must do it exactly. You know, very often cults even try to, um, kind of litigate over the content of your own head that, you know, they tell you what you, what you're allowed to think and what you're, what you're not allowed to think. So, so there is an extremely tight status game and they all, they often offer like ridiculous you know, crazy status rewards. The cult that I, I look at in detail in the book is the Heaven's Gate cult. And, and, and the idea there was that if you follow our rules, you're going to be literally taken away by UFOs and you're going to be taken to the level above human. So you're going to have such high status, you're going to be literally superhuman, which, which um, you know, not, not coincidentally is also what the Nazis and the communists promised followers of Nazism and communism, that they were going to become kind of superhuman people. That, that's a really tight group. You can extend that down. You can see, you know, so if the tightest group possible is a cult, then you can see something like, you know, fundamentalist Islamism as not a cult, but, but not far off a cult. That's a really, that's a tight group with really, uh, you know, high, like crazy promises of high status, very conformist kind of wild supernatural beliefs. Lots of political groups are very tight. Since the global financial crisis, I think the cultures of the West have, have tightened up. Politics now in the UK, in the US and in Canada, uh, it's just a mu- they're much tighter games than they were uh, what would you say 15 years ago? People have wilder beliefs. They're much more conformist. They're much more angry. So, so yeah, I, and I think the tightness looseness thing is, is useful because it takes it away from, oh, it's all the lefties, it's all the, it's all the right wingers, it's all the left wingers. It's actually everybody. The, the problem isn't being left wing or right wing. The problem is by being unhealthily tight. All right. So status is everywhere and it can take us down some dark places, cause a lot of problems. So some people think, well, why don't we just get rid of status? You know, make everyone the same, everyone equal. And we won't have these problems anymore. But as we talked about earlier, the fact that hunter-gatherer tribes, you know, they were very egalitarian in a sense, that didn't stop other kinds of status games from going on. And then you also talk about a modern day case study about what happened in Russia during Soviet rule when they tried that, when they tried to make everyone the same. And it didn't work out the way they thought it would. So what (laughs) happened in Russia when they tried to make everyone equal? Yeah, it was bad. It was really bad. And, 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 and this was, this was really illuminating for me because, you know, we, we've all heard, you know, you, you, we know what happens in the Soviet Union. It was pretty bad. But, but actually, when you look at it from a status perspective, it, it all starts to make sense. And, and, and so the idea, and this was an idea that was sort of bubbling around in, in the years after the Industrial Revolution, because in the Industrial Revolution, you start to see this kind of much more inequality. And these kind of captains of industry hoarding status and these very badly treated workers being very badly treated. And, and, and so, so this idea, we need to get rid of this. But what they, they imagined was that, that wealth and property ownership was the cause of, the, of our status anxiety. They didn't understand it was in our brains anyway. So, so they said, if we get rid of property ownership and or ownership of anything, we'll get rid of status anxiety and it'll be a paradise. It'll be amazing. But of course, that's not what happened at all. You know, they, they got rid of property ownership and, and just started playing a different kind of status game. What amazed me and what I didn't know before I did this research was that under Stalin, the Soviet Union did an enormous sort of U-turn and started actually embracing the status game again. You know, in, in the times of Lenin, all kind of, they try to abolish all outward signs of status. So even like ranks in the army medals, 
awards, you know, all that stuff was gone and, and Stalin brought, brought it all back because he realized it just wasn't working. You know, he, he even insulted people by calling them equality mongers. You're an equality mongerer. He said, you know, people want to own a cow. There's nothing wrong with owning a cow. It's perfectly normal to own a cow. They brought back all the um, awards and all the, you know, all, all the medals. At what you end up with in the Soviet Union is an even more hierarchical world than you had in the West. I mean, one group of um, sociologists went, you know, visited the Soviet Union, I think it was in the 50s. And, and they said there were like 12, 12 distinct social classes in, in the Soviet Union. And, and, the, and the, the top class really did live like the aristocrats of or the czars of the, the previous era. They even had servants. So they, were, they, were, they, were, they were swept away on holidays on these luxury trains that were full of extraordinary, you know, you know, full of butter and veal and, you know, incredible, you know, cigars. So it, it was entirely um, hypocritical. Um, all, all they did was just build a new hierarchy, put themselves at the top, which I think is what, what, that's what always happens when, you know, when people promise utopia, they just build a new hierarchy and put themselves at the top and the old people at the bottom. As I said, the, the, the reason it didn't work is because they just made that fundamental mistake. They, they thought that wealth and property and ownership caused our status anxiety but but the status anxiety is there anyway you cannot get rid of it so no matter what society you try and build our need for status will always assert itself yeah i think i mean george orwell talked about that animal farm right all animals are equal but some animals are more equal than others <laughs> yeah right. yeah yeah and it's yeah and it, and it, and it was brutal i mean it, i mean I, I i deliberately didn't sort of put any punches in that chapter and you know at the, at the same time the, the, the you know the people at the top were they call them the nomenclature? The, the nomenclature were, were, had their servants being taken by luxury trains and feasting, and to, you know, for their kind of free holidays and their to their holiday homes. People were literally eating each other alive in in gulags and on kind of prison islands. So it, it really is, you know, uh, it was horrific what happened in the Soviet Union, and it's a story that we we were, we were a bit obsessed with what, what was going on in. Germany in the middle of the 20th century in, in, in the West. And uh, I think the stories, I think the stories from the Soviet Union are, are just as useful for us to know and no less horrific. Yeah. So I think the lesson there, I mean, I think there's a book I read that ties into this idea that it, even as you try to eliminate uh, inequality, like the status game is still there. There's a book called Envy, a theory of social behavior by this guy named Helmut Schoick. And he makes that case is you can try to make things equal, but what ends up happening is people just find another status game to play. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah. That, 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 I mean, that's, I, mean, that's, I think that was one of the takeaways from my book, which I thought was probably quite, quite controversial, but you know, inarguable when you understand this stuff. And that is this idea of equality is a complete myth. We're never going to have equality because people are always going to want to be, you know, getting status is about winning, get, being above, and, 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 and you're never going to eradicate that from the human animal. Yeah. I mean, you can just see this with kids, right? Like you can give your kids, the same amount of food, but it looks like the same, but like, they're going to find a way. No, he's got a little bit more. <laughs> and yeah. we do, th- do that even yeah. as adults. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the fact that it's kids, you know, it demonstrates I mean, in the book, I talk about, you know, some of this stuff, you know, as soon as kids are able to play with toys that they're, they're arguing about who gets, who gets the toy. And it isn't about the toys about, because the toys is, is, is just symbolic, it symbolizes status. Yeah. So it's there, we, you know, we're born with it, 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 and it and it happens automatically. All right. So if we can't escape the status game, unless you're one of these, those, a hermit or one of those Japanese hermit dudes who just live in their, <laughs> their apartment room, how can we play the status game, but in a healthy flourishing way? Do you, have you figured that out? 
I try to answer this question in, in, in a few ways. I, I think a basic one that, that, I, that I found useful personally is, is this idea that we, we all too easily slip into dominance, you know, and, you know, these little acts of dominance that mark our days, you know, when we kind of roll our eyes, send rude emails when we feel we've been slighted. And, it, and it's a much better strategy, I think, to, to, to try and use these small moments of prestige to try to make people feel good as, as much as possible, even though, it, you know, in the short term, we might not, we might not get our way because I think, you know, people love status. If you get a reputation of somebody that sort of is, is generous with your status and makes people feel good about themselves, people are going to want to be with you and, and you're going to, you know, you're going to get lots of status coming, coming, going to sort of coming back your way. So, so I think these, you know, it's very easy and it's in our kind of animal nature, our pre-human nature to push back with dominance all the time. But, 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 but I think sort of mindfully go to prestige is a really useful thing. And, and I think on a, on a broader level, it's, it's, it's this idea of making sure that we're playing multiple games at once. You know, I think a really healthy life is one in which there are several different sources of status. Like, I think you should have a hierarchy of games. The one at the top that's your main game that you, and you put lots of attention and care into because it's not easy to earn status and, and get a reputation of being somebody of value. And you're going to have to sort of put some focus into that. But I also think you need to hedge because nobody wants to be in a cult where they've got one source of status and that's it. And just, just, just generally speaking, if the only thing you've got in your life is your job, for example, then what happens as is inevitable, especially as you get older, you become less respected. Other people overtake you, you know, things start going wrong. That's a sort of annihilation of the self. That's, that's a catastrophe. If that's your only source of status you're going to end up in a very dark place sort of very quickly so i think playing this kind of variety of games is a is a, is a, is a really useful takeaway as well maybe avoid social media too what's your take on that i think avoid that kind of virtue dominance behavior on social media so a don't allow yourself to be triggered by feelings of being slighted on social media you always have that in the back of your head that it's just it's just my brain with me. <laughs> like, it doesn't matter what this person has said that I don't agree with. Uh, but, but also it's about avoiding, you know, the, the kind of virtue play that's kind of mixed with dominance. So we were aggressively going after people for transgressing our kind of sacred rules. I, I think, I think that's the thing to avoid on social media. I'm, I'm sure that you can use, use social media to your benefit, but as, uh, if, if you use it kind of modestly and carefully, but, but I, I think, I think you're in danger when it becomes your your major source of status okay so first one give i think one of the i like that gives give status freely because it's free and it's unlimited it doesn't cost you yeah. anything to say hey good job yeah. on that and people people like that play multiple status games so don't just make your job your only source of status and then i think also i think the big takeaway too is just like be aware of status like being aware that there's a status game going on and exactly. like maybe i do this all the time my wife and i whenever we feel down I was like, I, maybe there's like some kind of status thing going on or maybe I feel like I'm not getting a win. And that helps because like, a lot of times you feel bad and you're like, why am I feeling bad? And bringing that status paradigm can, I don't know, it, it, it helps for some weird reason. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And, it, and, it, and it's just that realization and, and you know, since, since writing the book, uh, it's so often that I found myself in exactly the situation that you described with your wife where, where I'm down and I'm depressed. It's like, what's wrong with me? And then you think, Oh yeah, I this I feel bad that this happened t- today, and I, I haven't had a win for ages, and and, that, and that's what's getting me down. And then as soon as you, as soon as you get a win, as soon as something good happens, you're just on top of the world again. And it's actually once you start noticing it, it's amazing how much of the kind of ups and downs of your sort of daily mood I find are attached to what's going on in the in the in the status games of your life. Yeah, like I, I'm sure for an author, like you're probably checking your Amazon 
ranking like, oh, did I go up today? Ah, oh, yes. No, I can't. I, I learned not to do that after the first <laughs> yeah. book because it's, it's just, it's agonizing. You, you, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a disaster. So I don't, I never look at my Amazon. I don't look at the reviews. I don't look at the play ranking because you just get obsessed with it. Right. It, it. It just takes over. Yeah, you can't let that happen. Well, Will, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? So I'm on Twitter. So it's at Wstore, W-S-T-O-R-R. Yeah, and, and my website is, is, is just willstore.com. You can find out a bit more about sort of the various books on there. Fantastic. Will Store, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Brett. It's been a great conversation. Thank you. My guest today was Will Store. He's the author of The Status Game. It's available on Amazon.com. You can find more information about his work at his website, willstore.com. That's store with two R's. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash status, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Make sure to check out our website at artofmanless.com where you find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles from over the years about pretty much anything you think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLESS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think we get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, it's Brett McKay. Remind you to listen to the AOM podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Mm-hmm.